0: Thank you all for being here tonight. Today felt like it was finally summer, didn't it? It was pretty hot out there. Thank you so much for coming and being with us. My name is Amy Foster. I love to be a part of Women in the Word. I'm part of the teaching team here. It's just the great privilege of my life. Okay, I want you to raise your hands if you're a fan of Fixer Upper. Look at all the hands. It's a phenomena, isn't it? There's so many good things going on with that, but here's one thing that I think makes it so popular. I think it's the amazing contrast between that broken down, ugly, worn out house that they show you at the beginning, and in one effortless hour, it's transformed into a thing of beauty, and it's just a miracle, isn't it? I think that's what we love about it. I think the transformation is is so beautiful because it was so wrecked at the beginning and it was so broken. And I think that really resonates with us as women because, you know, we want to radiate beauty, don't we? We want to radiate beauty in our appearance and in our homes and our relationships and in our work product and all of that. Um, We don't really want to advertise those broken down before pictures, though, do we? We we don't want people to see those. We don't post them online or anything like that. And I think that we probably think the, the broken down part of our lives doesn't really have any purpose or value or meaning. Um, But I think what we're going to see when we look at Mary Magdalene tonight is something different, perhaps something a little more realistic, because Mary Magdalene was a fixer-upper too. Maybe she was the first fixer-upper. She's got a beautiful story. She's got a beautiful relationship with Jesus. And I think it's especially beautiful because it's got some terribly broken moments in it and so as we talk about her tonight I, I want you to look at the contrast in her life and I want you to consider that it could easily parallel your own life because we've all got our broken pictures and our broken moments so let's let's look at her story and let's look at the contrast the truth is God's able to turn anything that's broken into real real beauty and oftentimes he asks us to cooperate with that process and I think what we see in Mary Magdalene is a woman who cooperates. The Bible never tells us what she's feeling. It never tells us what her attitudes or her motives were. It always just tells us what she's doing. We see her action. And I want to tell you, I think she's a woman who's letting her faith guide her actions. That's what we're seeing. She's actively working with God as he continues to transform her life and he continues to take broken moments and turn them into beautiful experiences So let's look at her life and consider how it parallels our own. We're going to begin with who is she. Open your Bibles to Luke 8, 2. And just because some of you might be here for the very first time tonight, you've got on your table um, just just a, a lecture outline that's just there to help you take notes. And you've got a verse sheet. So some of the scripture that we're talking about tonight, we're going to be quoting right off of that verse sheet. But we're going to begin with Luke 8, 2. And soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means." This is the very first reference we have to Mary Magdalene, and if you're like me, you read that and you started flipping back a few pages thinking, where's the first part of her story? We don't get it. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about her life before she met Jesus. Um, We do know she has written about more than any other female follower of Jesus. She's considered the most prominent among the women who followed Jesus. She's named regularly in all four of the Gospels. She has a significant place in the story of Jesus' time on earth. Now, if you're new to Bible study, we're going to talk about the Gospels tonight. Um, when I say Gospels, that's the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you need to know those books were written either by an eyewitness of Jesus' life or from interviews with eyewitnesses. So the Gospels tell us about everything that happened when Jesus lived on the Earth, and that that's when Mary encountered him. Her name is Mary Magdalene. If you've spent much time reading the Bible, you know everybody was named Mary, and they have different ways of communicating, which, determining which Mary from which. She's referred to as Mary Magdalene, not because that's her last name. That's referencing the city that she comes from. So we've got a map that we're going to put up here for you tonight. Um, Magdala is the city that Mary's from, and if you'll look at the map, you'll see right up there by the Sea of Galilee. Up north, Magdala is just there to the west. I think they've put it in color. That's her home, and Magdala sits in a in a region called Galilee. Sort of like Fort Worth sits in a region called Tarrant County. So Galilee was the region where Jesus was traveling and ministering and teaching and doing many, many miracles. And Magdala sat there. It was a city right there on the edge of the sea, but it was also a city where two major trade routes intersected. So travelers came through Magdala. It was a city known for some wealth and for some commerce. That's really all we know about it. The other thing the Bible tells us is she was possessed by seven demons. And that's just sort of dropped in there, kind of like... She's from Fort Worth, and she has curly hair. (laughs) And I think that's so startling to us today, and I don't want to diminish um, the devastating nature of that, but I want to let you know it was a little less startling during the time when the Gospels were written. Um, The Bible tells us that we need to be aware there are spiritual forces at work in the world. And Satan has got his own demons, and they are his spiritual forces. And with Satan, they will always oppose the work of God, and they will always oppose the work of Jesus. So we read pretty regularly in the Gospels about people who were possessed by demons. So I think it makes sense that if demons were going to oppose the work of Jesus, they would be much more prevalent during the time that Jesus walked on the earth. So demonic possession, we don't know a lot about what that means for Mary Magdalene, but we've got other descriptions in the Bible that we can pull from. It always is a powerful, disabling, and destructive force in a person's life. It always completely controls the person. Sometimes it's described using... uh, It affects a person with physical torment... causing them to do things that looks like having seizures. Other times it looks like emotional torment, where they're demonstrating just overwhelming rage and terror and violence and anger. It is always um, uncontrollable, and it's always damaging and destructive. We've even got one instance of of a man who was demon-possessed. He lived just a few miles from where Magdala is, and his demonic possession resulted in him moving outside of town and moving into the caves and the tombs. And that sounds bad enough, just living in a cave in a tomb, but I need to remind you the caves and the tombs were where dead people were buried. So a, demonic, uh, a man possessed by demons was somehow either shunned by society or driven by his own demonic possession to go live in the tombs with dead people. So from all those different descriptions, we really get a picture of total darkness, total despair. That was her life. Before she interacted with Jesus and he healed her. But it's also a really, really hopeless picture because a person completely controlled by demons needed the touch of a savior but they would never pursue the Savior. The demons would not let them. We have got New Testament accounts that tell us the demons recognized Jesus. They knew he was the Son of God. They begged him to stay away. So a person who is demon-controlled would never pursue healing from Jesus. So it's a dark and a hopeless state. That's what we know about Mary Magdalene. I also want to take a few minutes and talk about who she is not. Um, there's a great deal of unmerited speculation attached to Mary. Some have suggested for many, many thousands of years, they've, there have been suggestions that she was a prostitute or a sinful woman, or even one suggestion that she had some kind of a worldly relationship with Jesus. You need to know that that information comes from unsubstantiated, extra-biblical resources, sources. Some of it comes from simply confusing her with another woman in the Bible— who was a devoted follower of Jesus, but it wasn't her. And some of that even comes from modern popular fiction that got turned into a movie. So you need to know that historians and theologians say there is absolutely no merit to any of those speculations. We have nothing to suggest that any of those things are true about Mary, so for our conversation tonight, we're gonna stick with what God tells us. She's from Magdala, and she was possessed with demons. So somewhere in the busy streets of Magdala, Mary met Jesus, and that would only happen because Jesus pursued her and wanted to heal her. He commanded those demons to release her, and in an instant, her life changed from darkness to light. She had a whole new life. And the truth is, Mary had the opportunity that each one of us has because Jesus pursues us, doesn't he? If you are sitting here tonight, you need to know Jesus pursues you, and that's why you're here. He pursues us. He knows we're sinful and forever separated from God. He wants to offer us something more. He wants to give us the chance to believe in him. To receive forgiveness and to step from darkness into new life. On your verse sheet, we've included 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And that's a great description of Mary Magdalene, and it's a great description of all of us when we put our faith in Jesus. So now she's free. She's free from the past and from the demons and the scorn and the shame and the powerlessness. She's free to live as a new creation, and in all her freedom, what does she choose? She chooses to become a follower of Jesus. And I'm going to say something that might shock you. She chooses to become a female disciple. Have any of you ever heard of a female disciple before? We don't don't hear this very much. We hear about the 12 disciples, men, and there were many other people who were disciples faithfully following Jesus. There were women. There were plenty of them. That Luke passage that we opened up with talked about the women who followed Jesus and financially supported his work. Also from Mark 15, 41, when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So I just want to let you know, in a culture that didn't value women very much, Jesus was changing things, and women were following him. Now let's talk about what it is to be a disciple. A disciple was a learner. They were, they were a lifelong student of a rabbi or their teacher, but it was a different kind of teaching. They didn't sit in his classroom on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 to 11. Rabbis taught very differently. They taught in bits and spurts constantly. And so if you were learning from a rabbi, you packed up and you followed him around everywhere. You followed your rabbi and he taught all along the way and he modeled things for you that he wanted you to learn. Um, I think what's remarkable about these women who choose to do that is they all had been healed of things by Jesus and they aren't content to just let Jesus pass through their life and bless them and make things a little bit better. Instead, they choose to step into his life with him. He became their rabbi and their teacher, and they followed him and they financially supported his work. Now, today we think nothing of a woman choosing the path of her life, choosing to study under someone. But I want you to slow down and consider the first century in the East, um, in the area known as Palestine. The Jewish custom of that day there were men who followed rabbis or teachers, there were not women. Who followed rabbis and teachers. That just didn't happen. That was not the cor- cultural norm. That's not something a Jewish woman would aspire to do. Actually, most historians say that would be scandalous. It would have been scandalous for a woman on her own to pack up and follow a teacher or a rabbi. It would have been unheard of for a woman to be designating where the financial resources were going. It would have been scandalous for a woman to travel around behind a man and be taught by someone who wasn't her husband or her father. So put yourself in Mary's shoes, she's had years tormented by demons, probably ostracized by the good Jewish society. What might she aspire to? A nice, comfortable life? Normal? Social acceptance? Blending in, looking like everybody else? The life of her dreams? Scandal? (laughs) I think she'd probably had enough scandal. It's hard for me to imagine that that's something that was on her list of how she wanted to live. But I think Jesus was looking around saying, follow me. And she said, okay. And she followed him. She stepped into this life with him. And I think to do that, it was a tremendous display of submission. And I realize in a room full of women, that's kind of a hard word to toss out there, Let's not get derailed by that. Submission was often, that word was used in a military context in a way that means to line up behind the leader. So we see Mary lining up behind the leader. It's not derogatory, it's not demeaning, it simply means you trust the authority of the one who was commanded to lead. Think of it in military terms because that's really the proper use of that word. That's what we see Mary doing. She's lining up behind Jesus and she's just willing to take the next step with him wherever it is. She's not determining that next step. She's allowing Jesus to lead her down the path that he wants for her. I think it required submission, but I also think it required great vision. Her life has already been made new and made better. It's so much better, actually, but somehow she understands Jesus is offering her more, and the truth is he was offering her the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said all through the Gospels. He said, I came to bring the kingdom of God. You won't find a quote in the Gospels where Jesus says, I came to make your old life a little bit better. He came to give them a totally new life. Matthew 12, 28, he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus came to bring the kingdom to earth. So let's talk about what it is. What is a kingdom? This is real simple. A kingdom has a king, right? And the king has power and has authority. And a kingdom has people who submit to the king. They live under his reign and they live under his rule and they live for his glory. And Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth And he said, anybody who attaches themselves to me, they get to be in the kingdom, and they get to experience this new life in the kingdom of God right now. Mary has vision to be able to see that, and she's willing to step into that new life. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, where we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So Mary lines up behind Jesus, and she chooses to learn from him and to follow him every single day. Just like a lifelong apprentice, she becomes a lifelong disciple. And it's just a beautiful picture. She's not content to just receive good from his hand. She's not content to just rest in this idea that she might be okay on the day she dies. She wants something more. She wants to live a kingdom life now. So she follows Jesus, and she decides that she's going to learn from him and let him transform her life over and over and over again. And that's really what gives her life purpose and meaning. It's not that she's been healed. It's not that she's doing this new and novel thing. It's that she's a disciple of Jesus and she's living in the kingdom of God. And I'm really excited to consider that we all have the same opportunity. We want meaning and purpose in our lives. We can have it. And it doesn't matter what our before picture looks like. It doesn't matter how broken down we've been in the past. We can enter the kingdom. We can line up behind Jesus. And the really uh, freeing thing for me to know is I don't have to get out ahead of him. I don't have to think up some big grand plan that I'm going to do for God and ask him to bless it. He doesn't ask me to do that. He asked me to get behind him. And he's going to take me through this process of transforming me and equipping me for whatever it is he wants me to do. You know, you probably all are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If you'll look closely at those words, your future and your hope, it comes from God's plans for you, not your plans for you. So Mary understands that, and she's willing to walk behind Jesus and to just embrace the new life that he's offering her. And it is a life of discipleship, and that's available to all of us. If you're a disciple, you're following And you're learning. You're learning every single day. So, I want to describe to you some of the things that happened in Galilee. We get this from the gospel accounts. After Mary met Jesus and started following him, these are just a few of the things that she witnessed and she observed and she learned from. Huge crowds would flock to Jesus to hear him teach, and they would marvel at the authority of his teaching. And sometimes he would teach in parables so that only those who were spiritually sensitive could understand. He calmed a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee, and people wondered, how did he do that? He continued casting out demons. He continued healing people. A crowd of 5,000 gathered to hear him teach, and after hours, Jesus looked out on them with compassion and knew they were hungry, and he did a miracle, and he fed all of them. And when little children tried to get close to him and unclean lepers and the disciples put a hedge out there and tried to keep them all away, you know what Jesus said? No, no, let them come. And he pulled them close and he held them. And those unclean lepers, he touched them and he healed them. Mary's watching all of that. So what do you think she's learning as God is transforming her? She's learning Jesus' word is authority. He doesn't just teach with authority. His word is authority. She's learning that he has power, power over nature, power over evil, power over sickness. She learns that in spite of all this power, he's still compassionate and approachable, and he's merciful, and he values everyone. So if she's a disciple, she's learning all the time. She's witnessing these things. She's learning what Jesus cares about, and it's changing her. She's learning to care about the things that Jesus cares about. That's what a disciple does. But unfortunately, she's not the only one watching Jesus. We know that the Jewish religious leaders were watching Jesus too. He's making them angry and jealous and threatened. And Jesus starts warning his followers about this time. We're going to go on to Jerusalem, and and that's where the Jewish leaders were headquartered. And Jesus told them, it's it's going to get difficult there. They're going to oppose me. Um, Mary shows us, That a devoted follower of Jesus will stay with him when things are hopeful and exciting and will also stay with him when things become frightening and confusing because that's what happens as they head to Jerusalem. Our map's still up there. You can see Jerusalem down in gold on the bottom. It's about a 75-mile journey. And they do move to Jerusalem. Jesus, the 12 disciples, many other followers, and the women go with him. Matthew 16:21 says, And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So they approach the city, this little band of followers, and many of them are prepared to die with Jesus. That's what they're anticipating. But the most remarkable thing happens as they enter Jerusalem, Jesus gets on a colt and he starts riding into the city the way a, a newly appointed king would come into the city. And the people start responding to him. Like he's a king. And it tells us that they take their cloaks off and they throw them down on the road, like rolling out a red carpet. And far in front of him and far behind him, they pick up branches, palm branches, and they're celebrating and they're waving these branches and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are worshiping him as he comes into Jerusalem. But all of that worship and praise within just a few days would turn to scorn and derision and contempt. And the religious leaders would ultimately have Jesus arrested and mocked and tried unjustly before their own council and the Romans and ultimately condemned to death. And Mary keeps following. She keeps following. She never steps out of the picture here. The next place we see Mary is at the foot of the cross, where Jesus is being crucified. All four gospel writers record that the women were present at the foot of the cross. John 19, 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We have other gospel accounts that says that sometimes they were watching from afar, sometimes they were standing Close. You need to know the foot of the cross had to be a frightening place. You know, it was um, a place where the the crowd was mob-like. Jesus was being insulted and mocked and sneered at, and he was being killed very, very slowly. I can't imagine it was a safe place for followers of Jesus. It was probably a very threatening place for female followers of Jesus, and you need to know that the male followers of Jesus were not there. Only one of them was there, the beloved disciple John. But the women are there, faithful, steadfast, not abandoning Jesus while others hide in fear. We see their devotion and their submission, that's quite obvious. It was a frightening place, it was also a confusing place because remember they're learners and they've learned so much about Jesus already, about this magnificent power that he has over evil and over nature, And they've learned that he's bringing the kingdom of God. So how can he be on a cross dying? Incredibly confusing for them. But in their fear and their confusion, look how consistent Mary is. I think she's decided if she's going to embrace the life that Jesus is bringing her, she can't walk away when things are frightening or confusing or unsettling, and it's such a picture of faithfulness that we see in her. She stays with Jesus when others are betraying him, denying him, and hiding in fear, and she keeps learning Being there at the foot of the cross was really important because she is witnessing some significant things that change the face of history. So keep remembering she's a learner. She's a witness and she's a disciple, so she's learning. She witnesses Jesus ministering to this criminal on the cross beside him and saying to the criminal, "'Today you'll be with me in paradise.'" unheard of. A condemned criminal could be accepted by God. She witnesses Jesus asking God to forgive his tormentors. She witnesses Jesus surrender his spirit. And those are perhaps the most important words in in the Gospels. He's obediently submitting to God's plan to redeem the world by giving his life. She's witnessing the reality. This angry mob thinks they're in control. The Jewish leaders think they're in control. But Jesus, powerful Jesus, is in control. He is submitting to this. He's choosing to be the sacrificial lamb and paying for the sins of the world with his death on the cross. Mary witnesses all of that, and she's learning. And I don't think she grasped the meaning of most of this until later on, but she's learning. She continues to witness when Jesus' dead body is taken down from the cross and it's carried away. The next time we see her is another important event in the Gospels. She shows up at the tomb. Matthew 27 um, describes this to us. Joseph of Arimathea was one of Jesus' followers, and he was a wealthy man, and he, he had paid um, to bury Jesus. And so in Matthew 27, verse 59, it says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So now we see Mary, she's gone from the cross of her Savior to the tomb of her Savior. The body is placed there and a large stone seals the tomb. The role of a witness is very important there um, because this, this would be disputed later and having witnesses to see that stone there is important. The stone means nothing gets in and nothing gets out. Now, the role of a witness is also important at this time in history. In Eastern culture, in the first century, the witness of two men was required to validate something as truth. Two men had to testify to something. So I want you to just think for a minute, of all Jesus' disciples, were there two at the cross to witness everything? There was one. So whose testimony do you think was received to talk about what happened at the foot of the cross? The women. This changed everything. The testimony of women would become accepted among Jesus' followers. Women could have a personal experience with Jesus and could testify to it, and people would listen. This gives their life value and meaning and purpose, and it's the same for us today. It's an amazing opportunity that they had, and we have it also but it only was an opportunity for those who stayed with Jesus in a confusing and a terrible place. If they'd walked away, they could not have been a witness to that. And so we too have to stay with Jesus in the terrifying places, in the frightening places, or we will not have a witness. We will not be able to testify to his grace and his healing in our lives. The last place we see Mary's name is back at the same tomb again. Jesus was buried on Friday evening and she comes back early on Sunday morning and we would later know that this was Easter Sunday morning. I want you to open your Bibles to John 20, and we're going to read this next section together. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple—that's a reference to John, the one whom Jesus loved—and she said to them, "'They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him.' Then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and she answered in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher, my master. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. That's an amazing event that she was able to witness. And the remarkable thing to me is all through it, she's just searching for Jesus. She's searching and she's seeking. Her heart is broken. Her dreams are crushed. She's frightened and confused, and she searches for Jesus. She comes back to the tomb on Sunday morning. Remember the the Jewish law was that you couldn't work on the Sabbath, so they had hurriedly prepared Jesus' body for burial on Friday night before the Sabbath began, and they had waited for it to be complete. They come back very early Sunday morning, probably before the sun was up. Um, to complete the work, showing this desire and devotion to just continue serving Jesus until the end. Um, Mary, along with several other disciples, were there, and they had to be confused again. I think they still believe in all that Jesus said and all that he did, and that's why they're there, but I think their faith was probably becoming pretty overwhelmed by grief and confusion at this point. And if you've ever experienced grief, you know you kind of feel it like a heavy, crushing weight. So just imagine this dark morning, this heavy, crushing grief, and all their confusion, and they're walking to the tomb. And what does Mary see? The stone has been moved. And she jumps to the assumption that someone has stolen Jesus. So we add chaos and confusion to grief and despair here. Suddenly, everything gets crazy. Notice how many people are running in this sequence here. She runs, probably breathlessly gets to Peter and John and says, "'They've taken Jesus. We don't know where he is.'" They burst out the door and start running towards the tomb. John gets there first. He glances in. He doesn't step in. And I think his eyes and his brain are struggling to understand what he sees. These cloths that had wrapped Jesus' body are laying there, and there's no body He doesn't step inside. Peter rushes up behind him, a little slower to get there, but not slow to jump into that tomb. He jumps in, and his eyes and his brain start struggling to recognize he sees that cloth, but no body. He also sees the cloth that had surrounded Jesus' head neatly folded up at the opposite end of this ledge where the body was placed. I think their minds are racing now, and I think this is probably what they're thinking Grave robbers wouldn't do it like this. Grave robbers wouldn't take those linen cloths off, because here's what they know that we didn't know. Those linen cloths had been dipped in expensive oils and perfumes. They were valuable. A grave robber wouldn't leave that behind. A grave robber also would have worked in haste. They wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the body. It would have made the body more difficult to carry, and they certainly wouldn't have neatly folded and placed these linen strips in these unique locations here. I think their minds are beginning to understand grave robbers don't do that. Then John steps fully into the tomb. He sees it all, and it says he believes. And the word for belief there is kind of like a dawning belief, a growing belief. It tells us that they still don't understand all the Old Testament prophecy that said the Messiah would die but would be resurrected. But belief is dawning and emerging here. And I think they start remembering Jesus' words, remembering how often he said to them, In Jerusalem, I'll be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. So many times in the book of John, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now so when it happens, you will remember. I think they're starting to remember. And in all the chaos and confusion, they rush back to their homes and Mary's left there alone. And it says she weeps. And the language is so important because we we read weeps and we think of sort of the Hollywood beautiful cry, a single tear coming down the face. Well, that's that's not what this word means. The word used here in the original language means loud, soulful, mournful, lamenting. It was a wail. It was a grief wail that came out of Mary there at the tomb. And right now I'm just speculating. I I can't tell you this is straight from the Bible, but I think Mary is hysterical at this point. I think this is the hysteria of grief. If you think about the last... Two days of her life, she witnessed the trauma of Jesus' crucifixion. She has waited in anguish to come back here. I doubt she slept very much. As soon as she gets back, she is startled and undone by the evidence that Jesus isn't there. She ran to get help from Peter and John, and they've left her. I think this is a moment when her faith is absolutely overwhelmed by grief and confusion, and yet she is doing the most beautiful thing she could ever do. She's searching for Jesus. She's just searching. It never tells us what she feels, but look at all those quotation marks. Look at what she says over and over and over again. I don't know where Jesus is. I don't know where Jesus is. Tell me where Jesus is. I'll go there. It's very clear what she's doing. She's searching for Jesus. She wants to be in his presence. And that is an amazing example for all of us. You know, we we haven't wept at the tomb of Jesus, but we've all had our moments of hysteria, haven't we? Moments when grief or pain is threatening to overwhelm our faith, and we weep, and because our eyes can't see Jesus, we assume he's not there. Perhaps he doesn't care. Maybe he's abandoned us forever. We've got a great lesson here. We can be like Mary and we can just search for Jesus. Just take our pain and our confusion and our questions to him and wait for him to heal and comfort us. I've included some great verses. I hope you'll take them home and memorize them. We search for Jesus because Jesus shows up. I want you to look at Psalm thirty-four, eighteen. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted." He is there. He is near. So it is up to us to look for him and search for him. And we have to look with eyes of faith. And then Psalm 147.3 says he heals the brokenhearted. He does it. So again, it is up to us to wait for him, to look for him and search for him and wait for him because it says he heals us. I'll just be honest with you, in in a grief-filled season of my life, I had a time when grief and pain was overwhelming my faith, and I asked a trusted friend, what do I do with all this pain? What do I do with the pain? I just can't carry it anymore. And she said, Amy, you know you take it to Jesus. And I thought, yeah, I know that. I know that's the right answer. I know that's true, but it isn't working. And I really struggled with that, with that discrepancy, because I know that's the right answer. And here's what I figured out. I didn't really want to know what to do with my pain. I wanted to know how to make my pain go away. And I believed it wasn't working, because going to Jesus wasn't taking the pain away. And you've probably all experienced that, haven't you? Pain has a purpose, Um, there's, I think there's nothing wrong with wanting to be free from pain, but sometimes God asks us to experience it. Sometimes he asks us to carry pain for a period of time and we're supposed to seek him in it until he decides to lift it. And we all have choices. Mary Magdalene had choices. She didn't have to go to the tomb that day. We can distract ourselves with busyness or shopping or relationships or careers. We can anesthetize ourselves with food or shopping or relationships. Uh, we We can be stoic and pretend that we're not feeling anything at all. We can do all of those things. But then pain does not accomplish God's purpose. And I hope you will remember this. God's purpose in pain is this. It creates a hole in your heart so God can come in and fill it. So God can come in and you can experience him in a way you never have before. And he will fill the hole and he will heal it. That's God's purpose for pain, but if we ignore it or deny it, we'll never go through the healing process, and we don't give God the space to turn it into something beautiful. What makes Mary beautiful is she just keeps giving God this space, and that's what she's doing when she searches for Jesus here. If she could find him, she would refuse to leave him. She doesn't recognize he's right there in her midst. I think that's why he asks her, who are you looking for, Mary? Because Mary was looking for the dead body of a rabbi, And Jesus wanted her to see the resurrected body of a Lord, of a Savior. And so he asks her who she's looking for. Again, she doesn't recognize him until this beautiful moment when he calls her name, Mary, Mary. And she heard that name the first time she ever met him when he cast the demons out of her. She recognizes the voice and she answers with what is a familiar and a personal and an intimate word, Rabboni. It means my teacher, my Savior. She recognizes him. John 10 3 says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. And that's exactly what he's doing to Mary right now. He is leading her out of grief and confusion and brokenness into something beautiful. It says she falls at his feet and she clutches him. And wouldn't we all do the exact same thing? And don't you know she's thinking, I'm not letting go of him because he might disappear again. <laughs> so she's holding on for all she's got. Jesus says, don't cling to me, it's not a reproof, it's not a rebuke. He's basically telling her the resurrection changes everything, Mary. And she's a disciple. She's about to learn what all has changed. First, he says there's a new reality. Don't cling to me means his physical presence on earth. This body she's clinging to, it would be temporary. He's not going to be there in this body much longer. He's going to ascend back into heaven. He's going to remain at the right hand of God, hearing our prayers, interceding for us, imploring God on our behalf. Mary would never be limited by the absence of his physical body again. She would never say, I don't know where he is again. Jesus reminds them just a little bit later in Matthew 28 20, and behold, I am with you always. That's a new reality. Second, there's new relationships now. You probably maybe didn't notice this. He says, go and tell my brothers. He's never called the disciples brothers before. Up to this point, he always referred to them as friends or servants, and now he calls them brothers. And you probably noticed all those pronouns. He keeps saying, to my father and your father, to my God and our God. He's telling them now that they're brothers and that they have the same father. He's not saying they're equal with Jesus at all, but he is saying because of the sacrificial work that he's completed on the cross that now they have been adopted into the family of God and they are heirs with Jesus Christ and he is not ashamed to call them brothers because the resurrection changed everything. That's what he's telling them. And next he tells her that she has a new responsibility. Go and tell. Go and tell, Mary, In this instant, he has changed her grief and mourning, her sad before picture, into rejoicing and hope, and he gives her life great meaning and purpose with the instructions, go and tell. Don't just be a witness. Go and testify to what you have seen. And now she's the one running. The guys were running earlier, and now Mary's running, and she's running with these hope-filled words, I have seen the Lord. Everything has changed now. You know, she runs to the guys, the 12 guys, who had become the apostles. Apostles are those who spread out throughout the world and told the story of Jesus' resurrection. But the church fathers gave Mary an important title years later. They said she was the apostle to the apostles. Isn't that beautiful? She was the one who got to go. She was the first to encounter the risen Lord. Her name was the first one called. She was the first to be a witness to the new reality that we all benefit from today. And that reality is Jesus Christ, the holy son of God, suffered on the cross and he died to save sinners. And because he fully satisfied the debt and fully paid the price, he rose victoriously out of the tomb and today he lives. And if we believe that, if we put our faith in that, God still takes the most broken things in the world, us, our dark souls, and he turns them in to things of beauty, children of God. What a beautiful story. Do you want a beautiful story too? Don't we all? We can have beauty, we can have purpose, we can have meaning, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is, because he's pursuing each one of you. You can let him free you from your sins, be your savior. You can embrace new life and let him become your teacher as you step into life behind him every single day, learning from him and following him. You can let him be your comfort and your healer when you're hurting and in pain. You can let him be your Lord. And what we see from Mary is you can cooperate with that process and have a life of beauty. Let's pray. God, you are a good God. And we praise you and we thank you that you are willing to turn our broken, sad lives into things of beauty. So we just ask for your help in doing that. I just want to pray for every woman in the room today. If there's a woman who has not stepped into your kingdom yet, Lord, I pray that you would prompt her heart to step into it today and to receive the healing that comes from Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's a woman in the room who's received that healing but has not stepped into the kingdom fully, following you every single day, that you would prompt her heart and she would do it today and never step out. I pray that if there are women in this room who are hurting and grieving, that they would seek you and find comfort and healing and peace with you alone because you tell us that that is who you are. So we praise you for who you are and we ask for faith to believe that that's who you are and to act accordingly. You are a good, good God, so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good night, everybody.